Have you ever walked in on a group of people laughing and you missed the punchline of what they were laughing about? You walk up and you, you feel this insecurity in your soul because you, you want to be a part of the thing. Everybody's laughing. It looks like they're having a good time. And you want you to be in on that, but you just you can't because you, you missed it. Or maybe you've been to a movie recently, and the movie may have hit in a spot where action sort of dies down a little bit, things calm down, and you think, finally, I've got to go to the restroom. And so you leave, you go to the restroom, you come back, and the main character is dead, everything is exploding, and you're it's like, what happened? Like this, I thought this was good. This is why the whole story is important. It's frustrating when we don't have all of the pieces together. And that's one of the reasons that we're walking through this series, because here at North Canton Chapel, we believe that, one of, that it is important for us as disciples of Jesus and as students of Scripture to have a clear understanding of the whole story of Scripture. Because when we lack this understanding, we take things out of context and we get a wrong or an improper view of God. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by a theologian named A.W. Tozer. And he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, we live and we move and we breathe in response to what we think about who God is. And when we have a clear understanding of the whole story of Scripture, we can have a clearer understanding of the common thread that emerges throughout the narrative. It's the thread of God's incredible love for his people. It's a story of adoption and of redemption. And if you get nothing else out of today, if you like zone out, if I don't do this thing well and you're checking out, that's completely possible. Uh, but if that happens today, I want you to know that in every part of this narrative, we see that God seeks to restore us to himself in order to bring himself maximum glory. And you're going, I thought you wanted me to remember one thing. That seems like a whole bunch of stuff packed into that paragraph. There was. Um, so I want us to remember it like this, and we're going to say it together. God's grace is for God's glory. Would you say that with me? God's grace is for God's glory. One more time for kicks and giggles. God's grace is for God's glory. See, in the whole story, we see what Pastor Louis Giglio of Passion City Church calls fingerprints of grace throughout the entire narrative. And we've talked about some of these already if you've been with us the last few weeks in the whole story. See, in Genesis 3, we see God's grace as he gives Adam and Eve animal skins to cover their sin as they had sinned against God and became aware of their physical, emotional, and spiritual nakedness. In this, we see grace. In Genesis 4, when Abel brings a sacrifice offering to God of the firstborn of his flock, when God accepts that offering and shows favor on him, we see grace. In Genesis 6, 5 through 8, when God looks out at the complete depravity of humanity, so much so that he regrets creating it at all. And he sends a flood to cover the whole earth. He chooses Noah and his family to repopulate the earth. In that, we see grace. 
Yet again, in Genesis 11, we see that humanity is so completely sinful and prideful that they again think of themselves as greater than God. And so they build this city, this tower called Babel as a monument to themselves. Look how great we are. And so God, by his grace, comes and scatters them so that they will have a proper view of who they are and who he is. We see from all of this that there's something deeply broken within humanity. Pastor Chad talked about this last week as we closed out Amplify. See, there is a depravity. There is a sinfulness that exists within our very being that Paul describes in Ephesians 2 as being dead in sin. And through the whole story of scripture, we see God pouring out his favor, his grace on us in order that we may see him clearly and that he may bring maximum glory to himself. See, the common thread that weaves throughout this whole narrative is not a secret. The common thread is the glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ, received by the Holy Spirit and lived out by God's adopted sons and daughters, his royal priesthood of believers, the church. It has always been and will always be about him. See, the glory of God is the center of it all. Say it with me. God's grace is for God's glory. See, his glory is the ultimate standard for all of life. And anything that comes in against his glory stands in rebellion to who he is. And we call that sin. And you might think, man, that that seems a little egotistical. You get this God, he's all about his glory. What's, What's the deal? Why is it so much about him? Pastor Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, wraps this up for me in a way that that just makes so much sense. He said, God is the only being who is good and the standards are set by him. Because God hates sin, he has to punish those guilty of sin. Maybe that's not an appealing standard, but to put it bluntly, when you get your own universe, you can make your own standards. You know, one of the ways when I was a young boy that my dad instilled in me a sense of wonder for the glory of God was through a tiny blip of the universe that we can see, the stars. Now, I grew up in North Carolina on warm summer nights that we don't see many of here. Um, I used to stand out in my driveway with my dad. And we would look up at the stars, and we would, we would look for shooting stars, and we would spot constellations, and we could name stuff, and we would look for planets, and we would have these incredible father and son moments where my dad, more than just pointing out the galaxies, would instill in my heart the truths of God. And I have on my right arm a tattoo of the Big Dipper. Some of you didn't know I had tattoos. I do. Um, But I got that from my dad. My dad passed away about three years ago from cancer. And every night after we would be done with our stargazing, he would say, son, do you see the Big Dipper? I'd say, yeah, dad. 
See, if you can find the Big Dipper, you can find the North Star. And I said, I know, I know, Dad. He said, if you find the North Star, it guides you home. Now, I've never been in a place where I've needed the stars to navigate me from A to B. But I have been in multiple places where the stars have navigated me back to a wonder of the glory of God. And in a very similar father and son moment, in Genesis 12, God chooses to reveal his glory to his people through Abram. Let's stand together as we read this passage in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray. God, I pray that through the teaching of your word this morning that you would help us to leave this place today with a greater understanding of your grace and of your glory. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. So today we're gonna look at some highlights of Abram from this moment where God shows him the, Abraham, the covenant that he's gonna make with his people and his descendants, mainly Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so if you know anything about Genesis, you know that I just described chapters 11 through 50. So I am not going to read all of that. Okay, amen. Anybody in the room? Yeah? Okay, so I'm not going to read all of that for us today, but we are going to move quickly, and we're going to hit some highlights of how this common thread of God's glory and his grace runs through these stories, okay? So we see these fingerprints of grace as God establishes a covenant with Abram. And in this covenant, he tells him what we just read, that he is going to make from him a great nation. And that God is going to use his descendants of Abraham to make his glory known throughout the earth. And we know, say it with me, that God's grace is for God's glory. And there are seven promises for the Abrahamic covenant. And so if you are filling in the blanks on the back of your notes, if you grabbed one of those, I'm gonna run through these and you're gonna hate me because I gave you blanks and I talked through them quickly. So I apologize for that because you're gonna get frustrated, but that's okay. Um, I'm talking, so that's how it goes. So anyway, uh, God with seven promises of the Abrahamic covenant, okay? The first is that God would make a great nation of Abram, okay? God would make a great nation of Abram that God would bless Abraham and, Abram and his family and descendants with his provision, that God is going to be their provider, and his presence, that he will always be with them. God would then make Abram's name great, that his legacy would be honorable, that God's people were, be, were to be a blessing to others as they obeyed God's law and demonstrated proper worship. Because remember, God is all about his glory. And he always chooses his people to help point to him. God would also bless those who blessed his people. And he would judge those who oppressed his people. He would bless those who blessed and judge those who oppressed. And then all people, all people, would be blessed through Abram and the descendants that followed him. See, these are incredible 
promises of God to his chosen people. And as we look through this covenant, it's important to remember some things, okay? Some things I want to highlight here. There was nothing that Abram did to deserve this covenant coming to him. Nothing. Abram, as far as we know, was a pagan Chaldean with no relationship with God. And it was only by God's sovereign grace that God came to Abram and offered him a covenant with a purpose. In fact, we'll see in a little bit that God tends to use Abram and his descendants in spite of their brokenness and their depravity. Aren't we glad that this is true of us? That God chooses to use us in spite of ourselves? This covenant would take some time to come into fruition. The things that, that God is describing here, that you don't just snap your fingers and those happen. I mean, if you're God, I guess you could, but that's not the implication we get here. It would take some patience and some trust. Anybody else in the room have trouble with patience and trust? Like those two words are like, really? Those are the things? Yeah, those things. And Abram begins to doubt the plan. He begins to go, God, really? These are the promises? I don't, I don't know. I don't see it. So God, in Genesis chapter 15, reminds him of his promise. In 15 verse 5, it says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. See, I like to imagine this moment as being on a hot North Carolina summer night. God takes Abram outside and has him look up at the stars and reminds him of his grace and his glory. See, God had to readjust Abram's vision. He had to take him out to the stars and remind him what is what. Yet still, Abram loses sight again. And he takes things into his own timing instead of trusting God. And through his wife's servant, Hagar, Abram's son, Ishmael, is born. And we don't have too much time to dive deep into that story. But this single act causes a slew of problems for Abram and for Sarai. And quite honestly, it's causing tensions that are still present in the Middle East even today. By not waiting on God's timing, Abraham did what I can only compare to taking a thick, juicy cut of brisket, tossing it in the microwave and hitting the popcorn button. (laughs) Ruined it. But that's what we do. When God lays out a plan and a purpose for us and we say, awesome God, that popcorn button is looking good. That's what we do. In the covenant, we also see that God chooses to bless his people so that they could be a blessing to others. And this is important for us. This is a piece that carries forward into this moment, even right now, because God never intended for Christianity to be a safe weekend social club in which we learn to live our best lives now and apply our faith to the places that we deem appropriate. The call of Christ is a call to come and die. It is a call to go, to move into action. 
See, we are not called to be spiritual consumers in which it is all about us. We are called to be spiritual contributors, disciple makers, gospel proclaimers in which it is all about Jesus. Because everything is about him. The covenant itself pointed to Jesus. Because see, through this covenant with Abram, God implements a plan of redemption that would bring about the birth of a nation that would lead us to the Messiah, Jesus. God again reminds Abram of this covenant in Genesis 17, and he changes Abram's name to Abraham. And he changes Sarai's name to Sarah. It's one of those things where God says, hey, I've I've been back over this covenant with you a couple of times. Maybe if I change your name, you'll get it. No, there's more here than that, and we're gonna dig into that in a little bit. Because, see, when God chooses his people for his purposes, he gives us new identities. He's showing us grace. He's inviting us into his story that is about his glory because, say it with me, God's grace is for God's glory. See, in Genesis 21, God begins to fulfill this covenant with the birth of Isaac. See, Isaac is the promised son. He is the son that is born against all odds, and his very existence points to the supernatural provision of God for his people. But almost as soon as Isaac arrives on the scene, we come to a turn in the narrative where God tests the faith of Abraham and he tests this commitment in an account that is possibly one of the most memorable and shocking moments of all of scripture. Yet its outcome is one of the greatest stories describing the loyalty of God and his covenant foreshadowing of his redemption for his people. We read this in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. See, before we move too far here, it's important to note that not every hardship is inherently evil. See, we are quick to blame the demon under every rock for our sicknesses, our financial problems, our first world inconveniences, and our frustrations, instead of looking to the rock of our salvation to see if he may be testing us. He may be testing us to prove his grace and his glory. We know this because... God's grace is for God's glory. See, here in this text, we have a father that's being asked to sacrifice his promised son. And when I read this, I often wonder, why? Why why do we have to come to this point? And as a father myself, I try and place myself in Abram's shoes, and I look into the eyes of my daughters, Riley, Raina, and Autumn, and it breaks open something inside my soul. And it throws everything in me in defiance against this moment. Because I love my daughters. Why would I do this? 
Why would Abram take his son Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him? Why would God ask this? See, I believe in this moment that God knew that Abram loved Isaac deeply. So deeply that he wondered if he loved Isaac more than him. Remember that Isaac was not just the beginning fulfillment of a covenant promise. Isaac was the baby that Abram and Sarah had dreamed of, that they had prayed for, that they had labored over. Isaac is literally the joy of his mother's heart. And I believe the test here for Abram is do you still love me more than the blessings that I give you? I think that's a question that we should all ask of ourselves. Do we love God more than the blessings that he gives us? Are we just in it for his stuff? We see from the text that Abram passes the test. See, he lays Isaac on the altar and he's getting ready to sacrifice his son and God intervenes. It says uh, in chapter 22, it says, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, God provides for his people. He desires to bless us. And in this, we must come to realize that he is the source of all grace. Because why? God's grace is for God's glory. See, Isaac grows to be a man. He's faithful to God. He marries Rebekah. And we see again in, an, in a narrative which can only be seen with God as the author. Because Rebekah is unable to have children. And so Isaac prays. He says, God, will you give us children? So God answers the prayer and gives her not one, but two boys, twin boys. And in maybe one of the most honest passages of all of Scripture in Genesis 25, 22, Rebekah cries out to God and she says, why is this happening to me? See, we thought the Abraham-Isaac test was hard. She's going, I've got two baby boys at war in here. You have nothing on me with this test stuff. But no, the descendants continue through Jacob and Esau. Esau being the firstborn was the first in line for his father's inheritance and for the covenant promise that would come. First to Abraham, then to Isaac, and now to Esau. was how it was supposed to go. But we get this picture that Jacob and Esau didn't really get along that well. That from the moment they were in the womb, they always fought. Always. See, Esau was Isaac's favorite, and Jacob was Rebekah's favorite, and they had different skill sets and interests. Early on, we notice what Jacob lacks in physical ability, he makes up for in mental agility. See, he's a trickster. He's a swindler, and by all means, well, from what we can tell, a pretty good cook. So good, in fact, that on the day that his brother comes in exhausted from a long hunt, he convinces him to trade his inheritance for a bowl of stew. 
And we go, man, that had to be some good stew. He didn't microwave that brisket. But we do that. We take God's covenant blessings, the thing that he means for us, that he has dreamed of for us, and we trade it for lesser things. And we don't trust his timing. And we lean on ourselves more than we do him. We all have bowls of stew. So we get this picture that the deceptive bone that Jacob has maybe comes from his mom. See, she helps her son, her favorite son, deceive the husband that she loves in his dying days, tricking him into giving the blessing that is rightfully Esau's to Jacob. We see in Genesis 27, 28 and 29, where Isaac blesses Jacob. And he says, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So Esau comes home and hears of this deception and he is more than a little bit angry. In 27 verse 41 it says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning my father are approaching and I will kill my brother. Mom hears Esau's intent and she sends Jacob off really to save his life, sends him away. And on Jacob's journey, while he is running because of his deception, God encounters him in Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob is dreaming and God appears to him in a dream and he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The covenant of God holds true through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. Jacob, who even through deception, even through lies and cunning, God is able to take what was evil and use it for his good. See, God is the source of all grace. God blesses us often like he blessed Jacob, and we don't deserve it. See, Jacob's name literally meant deceiver. And God still establishes his covenant with him. The guy who stole it. And God says, no human plan of evil can stop my purposes and my promises. This wasn't so Jacob would be seen as righteous. That's not the ultimate goal of God's grace. We know what the goal of God's grace is, right? 
God's grace is for God's glory. God continues to show his blessing on Jacob in Genesis 32, where after wrestling all night with God and not relenting, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And throughout the Old Testament, a name carried with it an identity. The new name would indicate the favor of God, and it pointed forward to the coming promise of God. See, the name Israel was used to refer to the entire nation that derived from Jacob's family lineage. This name was not chosen by Jacob, but it was given to Jacob by God as a gift and a promise because for the rest of his life, Jacob and his legacy would no longer be known by deception. It would be known by God's grace. And God's grace is for God's glory. Too often we hold to our old names instead of living in the new God-given identities that we have as adopted sons and daughters of the king. Because when we are placed into the family of God, we are given a new name, a new identity, and a new story. See, we have a good father who wants nothing more for us than for us to live in the freedom of the identity that he is authoring for us. It's in the same favor that God brings Jacob and Esau back together. He writes a story of reconciliation and redemption with two brothers where past sins are forgiven and God's grace is elevated. But as the text continues, we see Jacob's descendants grow. And he has 12 sons and a daughter that are named. The sons would later form the 12 tribes of Israel. And of his sons, Joseph was his favorite. Maybe he liked being the favorite and he pulled that from mom. But the favoritism was thick. It was so thick that it caused Joseph's other other brothers to hate him. So much that they would decide, let's kill him. And then at the last minute, they talk some sense into one another and go, no, let's just sell him into slavery and lie about him dying, because that's better. Um, But you know, then in one of the craziest God-orchestrated turn of events in this entire narrative, we see that no evil plan of of humanity can thwart the promises and the purpose of God. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, we read this of Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. See, in the story of Joseph, God's grace is shown in that we see that God rules and reigns over all things and that he orchestrates the events of the world to perfectly fulfill his intentions for his creation. See, Joseph hits hard times while he's in Egypt. This is not the end of the story that we read here. He's accused of wrong. His reputation is tarnished. He ends up in jail. Things don't seem to be going well. But in all of this, he remains faithful, and God blesses him. 
says that everything that he touches is blessed. And he ends up in this place where God elevates Joseph to a place that is second in power only to Pharaoh. And when famine spreads through the land, threatening to wipe out the nation of Israel, God, by his divine orchestration, has placed Joseph in a position of power to provide food so that they would not starve. See, God had a plan the whole time. God is a good father who keeps his promises. He shows us grace. And God's grace is for God's glory. It's through God's grace that when we were dead in our sin, unable to establish a relationship with him, like Abraham, God established a covenant with us, a covenant of hope and redemption. God provided for us his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross as a sacrificial lamb, just as he had provided an offering in place of Isaac. God adopted us as sons and daughters and gave us a new name. So like Jacob, we would not be known by our depravity, by our sin, but we would stand in freedom and live in our new identity as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So that like Joseph, by living in the purpose that God had orchestrated for us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we could be a part of his redemptive work to those who are starving, not just in a physical famine, but in a spiritual famine. Because God's grace is for God's glory. God's grace was not a reaction to the fall. It was the plan from the beginning. It's the plan that all would come to see the glory of God through the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we didn't deserve it, when we didn't earn it, when we were dead, not bad, not broken, not messed up. You have to be alive to be those things. When we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. He's good. So today, if you felt the call of God on your heart to respond, to make Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, there's space for you here. If you need to come today and you need to pray, and you need to say, like Abraham, I need to let go of the blessing that I have loved more than God. There is space for you here. If today you need to come and confess because you've been trading God's covenant blessings for bowls of stew. There's space for you here. Because we have a good father who shows us grace over and over again. So let's today let God's grace be the fountain to which we run. Let his glory be our song. Let's stand and sing and respond as you need to respond.
actually have them stand out in my driveway with my daughters and I look up at the stars and I point out constellations and we look for shooting stars and my daughter Raina loves to find the planet Venus but as we look out there together it's my hope and prayer they would begin to see and understand the grace and the glory of God that my dad instilled in me. That my descendants, my daughters, my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, that they would know and see the grace and the glory of God in their lives. Because God's grace is for God's glory. God, it's our prayer today. That you would help us to see the common thread of your grace, not just through this narrative, but through the narrative that you weave in our hearts and our lives. We love you. We thank you for making a way for us when there was no way. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.